Well, before we look at our passage this morning, let me kind of give you a little introduction of the things that preceded um, what we'll look at together. In many ways, it's a, a genealogy of jealousy passed down from one generation to the next. You'll remember Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. The scripture is clear that Isaac favored one of those sons more than the other, Esau, right? Esau was strong and, and was a hunter, and Isaac really admired that about his son. And that admiration, that favoritism created a jealousy between those two brothers, Jacob and Esau. Jacob may have been strong, but Esau was smart, right? And with the help of his mom, he figured out a way to steal his brother's birthright and blessing and then fled for his life. But then the tables turned. Jacob fell in love with the youngest daughter of his uncle Laban, a girl named Rachel. And here's where the deceiver became the deceived. Because Laban tricked Jacob and in the meantime entered into a relationship with Leah instead of Rachel. And then he made uh, Jacob promise to continue his service in order to win the right to have his real true love Rachel as his wife as well. So as you look at the story, you see that this pattern of jealousy will continue as the two wives now battle for their husband's affection. Rachel was barren, so Leah definitely had the upper hand. She had four sons, and Rachel had none. Driven by jealousy... Rachel decided to ask her maidservant, Bilhah, to be kind of a surrogate mother and have children on her behalf so that she could be credited with those children as well. And she did. She had two sons. Not to be outdone, Leah followed that same advice with her maidservant, who also had two sons. So this battle is continuing on between these wives, and the score is now Leah 6, Rachel 2. Leah patted her lead with two more sons before God finally opened the womb of Rachel and the firstborn of Jacob's true love from the wife he sought was Joseph. And then the youngest of what are now 12 sons was born and his name was Benjamin. What began with Jacob would now become a family trait was this legacy of jealousy that existed between he and his brother that was then exemplified between his wives is now passed down to his sons. Let's look at that together in Genesis chapter 37. If you would turn to Genesis 37, verse 1. It says, Now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned, in the land of Canaan. These are the records of the generations of Jacob. Joseph was 17 years of age was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than the, all his sons because he was the son of his old age and made him a very colored tunic. And he his brothers saw that his father had loved him more than all his brothers, and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. See, Isaac favored Esau, 
and created jealousy between his sons. Jacob favored Rachel, created jealousy between his wives. And now Jacob repeats the sin of his father and shows favoritism towards Joseph. And the trail of jealousy continues on. This coat, as is described in here, a very colored tunic, has, has a lot of descriptions made about it. But I think more than what it looked like was what it stood for. The coat was not only a sign of special favor, I believe it represented the plans of a special inheritance. Joseph was a favored son of a favored wife who was set apart for a favored gift from his father. And as the text tells us, the lingering jealousy of his brothers now has advanced into hatred. Now, I don't know about you, but as I'm reading this account, I'm picturing this in my mind, I'm thinking, this has got to be pretty obvious, don't you think? Because it talks about in here how the brothers hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. So there's some bad dialogue going on in this family. And as I'm thinking about this, I'm, I'm wondering, why didn't Jacob do anything? This had to be obvious. I mean, I don't know about you, but when I'm angry, it's pretty hard to hide. <laughs> my lip kind of quivers. My eyes furrow, and people usually know when I'm upset. Terry, my sweet wife, it's even harder for her to hide. Her, her eyes shoot these darts. I don't know if you've ever seen that before. <laughs> but you don't want to be on the receiving end of those little poison arrows, right? You know when she's angry. And, and we're all like that. It's hard to hide our emotions when they are that strong. But for some reason, Jacob turns a blind eye. Even when there is tremendous turmoil obviously happening within his family, what does he do? Nothing. That's the problem. Jacob does nothing. He is a passive man who is unwilling to lead his family. And the reason I believe that's true is because you, as you look at the account, you see that he is passive in the baby battle of his wives. You read a little earlier, and he was passive when his only daughter, Dinah, was raped. He was passive when his sons took a bloody revenge for that sin. Passive, passive, passive. He did nothing. And today, in this account, he's still doing nothing. Jacob was unwilling to take the lead in the life of his family. And the consequences grew worse and worse as time. Okay, dads, this is where we enter in to this story. Don't look past this disaster because it is the same result in our families. When we fall into the same trap of relinquishing our control or our responsibility to be the spiritual leader in our home. That's not your wife's job. It's not the school's job. It's not the church's job. Dads, that's your job. Passive husbands lead to broken marriages. Passive fathers lead to dysfunctional families. Because men, if we are not fulfilling our God-given responsibility to lead our homes... Just like we see in the life of Jacob, disaster awaits our families. And so let me encourage you to consider some things knowing this reality. First of all, you cannot lead out of that which you do not know. In other words, it's simply not possible to be the spiritual leader of your home if you're not walking with Christ 
yourself. So in order to be a leader in your home, begin with leading yourself. Be a man of prayer. Be a man whose life is directed by the counsel of God's Word. Speak to your family out of the experience of what God is doing in your life first. Being a spiritual leader begins with spiritually leading yourself first. But that being said, don't ever make the mistake of trying to to walk alone. You've heard me talk about the series that some men and I have done in the church. I know Russell's doing it with a group of men now called Raising a Modern Day Knight. One of the reasons I really love that study directed towards dads raising up courageous men is that it has this premise, it's based on this premise that we do this best when we stand together around a common purpose and a common goal. One of the reasons I think we need to be committed to this is that we need to link arms with men who are in our same season, going through some of our same challenges. But at the same time, we also need to link arms with those who've been down this road that we're walking and can give us insight based on the things that they've learned along the way. I can tell you from recent experience, for example, that Terry and I are entering into raising a teenager. Graham will be 13 years old here this year, and so we're strapping in for what could be a bumpy ride at times, right? That's just part of the process. But because we know that, I have Mark Hardy, Hud Huddleston, and a list of other people on speed dial on my phone. Because I want to make sure that I have a good connection with men who have been down this road before who can help me do this well. I want to be very intentional about seeking mentoring relationships with men who can invest themselves into me so that I can invest myself into my sons so that they can be the men of God that God designed them to be. And so we need to be committed to that as men. You see, part of the wisdom of being a spiritual leader includes the commitment to, re- to surround yourself with, with men who are committed to doing the same. Men who've walked down the road and could teach you what it looks like. And, and let me just say, here's a little caveat. That doesn't mean they have to have had perfect families. Because, in fact, I want to be with men who've been in a battle for the life of their family and have not given up. Who've been through some hard times and who've said, I'm not quitting. That's the kind of man that I want to spend time with. Because, men, we need to know as soon as we step out of the battle and become a passive dad, We are giving the enemy unencumbered access to our most important treasure. And the enemy's goal is very clear. Scripture makes no bones about it. It says he comes to steal, to kill, and destroy that which we love the most. And our families are on the top of that list. So don't let him in by passively looking the other way. Be courageous. Remember God's promise in the book of Joshua when he says, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Because we'll see in our passage as we continue on, if if Satan is allowed to get a, a foothold in our family, he will seek to destroy that which we have chosen not to protect. 
Read with me, beginning in verse 5. Then Joseph had a dream. And when he told this to his brothers, they hated him even more. And he said to them, please listen to this dream which I've had. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And lo, my sheaf rose up and also stood erect. And behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. Then his brothers said to him, are you actually going to reign over us? Are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Now, he still had another dream and related it to his brothers and said, Lo, I've had still another dream. And behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. And he related it to his father and to his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you've had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in his mind. As you read this account, you're probably like me and you're looking at this and you're wondering, is Joseph just this naive, right? Does he not know that what he's doing is inciting the jealousy of his brothers? Or maybe he's arrogant. He's a 17-year-old boy. Maybe he is boasting in what God is telling him. Or maybe he's confused. Maybe he just doesn't understand. And he genuinely is seeking some counsel from his family to say, what does all this mean? All kinds of people have had all kinds of opinions about what might have been the case here. But the fact of the matter is, we just don't know the motivation in Joseph's heart for sharing these dreams. However, I'd like to suggest to you this morning that it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Because the jealousy that has been festering in the heart of his brothers, whether Joseph's motives were pure or not, simply would not have made a difference in their response. Even if God was speaking through these dreams, which he was, no one could see it because hatred had made them blind. Fact, I think if you were to reverse all this and you were to remove that disease of distrust that has now infected this family, and let's say that Jacob was the spiritual leader that God intended him to be, and his family was faithfully seeking to walk in God's path, if this family dynamic was different, I really do believe that these, ble- these dreams would have been a blessing and not a curse. That they would have created peace and not this discord. But you see, this blindness is what happens when sin is allowed to reign. We cannot see the goodness of God when our minds are set on selfish gain. No dream, no miracle, no sign can get the attention of those whose eyes are blinded and whose ears are made deaf by unrepentant sin. And so, if we want to hear God speak in our life, and I hope you do, a good place to start might be to examine your own heart. This is the example of David. You remember the passage in Psalms where he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any wicked way of me. And then... Lead me in your everlasting way. David knew that he could not walk in God's ways until he allowed God to work in his heart. Because we always see God's way best when our eyes are not blinded by sin. 
But the stage has already been set for disaster. Look at verse 12 with me, if you would. It says, Then his brothers went to pasture their father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send you to them. And he, Joseph, said to him, I will go. Then he said to him, Go now and see about the welfare of your brothers and the welfare of the flock and bring word back to me. So he sent them away from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. A man found him and behold, he was wandering. Joseph was wandering in the field and the man said to him, What are you looking for? Joseph said, I'm looking for my brothers. Please tell me where they are pasturing their flock. Then the man said, They've moved from here for I heard them say, Let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Now, again, there's a lot of debate on why Joseph wasn't one of those brothers shepherding in the field. And we don't know what was happening as this part of the story. But, but I believe that this is actually a part in the story of Joseph where we begin to see glimpses of the character that God will develop to redeem his people. In order to see that, we need to understand and appreciate this step of obedience that Joseph is taking. I mentioned to you earlier that uh, Jacob's daughter, Jacob now called Israel, his daughter Dinah was raped, remember, by a man from where? Shechem. A man from Shechem. And in response, as I mentioned to you, Joseph's brothers got together and literally caught the men of Shechem with their pants down and murdered all the men, massacred, destroyed all the animals, looted the cities, took the women and children captive. So you tell me, how popular is this family in the land of Shechem? Not very popular. But yet this tells us that this is where they are tending their flocks. And I think this may be the reason that Jacob asked Joseph to go check on their welfare. But I want you to think about this. Shechem is 50 miles away by foot from Hebron where Jacob and his family lived. His brothers were in dangerous territory, but what advantage did they have? Each other. There was strength in numbers. But who's covering Joseph's back? Nobody. He's alone. He's taking a step of faith, I believe, knowing the dangerous territory that he's walking in. But his answer to his father's request was simple and clear. I will go. I will go. This reminds me of a similar scene when another shepherd boy, also asked by his father to go check on his brothers, made the same decision. David, remember? It it still may be a pretty raw form. But I believe we are seeing some of the early signs of the character and integrity that Joseph has to stand strong in the midst of danger without a willingness to compromise. He risked his life to do what is right. And I believe he knew what he was stepping into. So, let me ask you, would you do the same? Students, I believe this is where you enter in to this story. Remember, Joseph was a teenager, right? He was 17 years old. There was a lot at stake when he stepped into enemy territory. And you need to know that it's not all that different when you walk in the world that you live in among your friends. Your schools and neighborhoods are filled with invitations to compromise, aren't they? 
They're all around you. Your friends who don't know Christ, and even maybe some of those friends who do, will invite you to play the games that teenagers play in order to feel significant and accepted in the world. They'll try to convince you that your value is found in your success in athletics. They'll try to convince you that you're not, if you're not dating someone, then you're just not important. You're not popular. That somehow you're an outcast. They'll want you to believe that your grades are what determine your ultimate value and worth in society. But the message of the cross does not agree. Jesus made it very clear through his life death, and resurrection, that your ultimate value is found not in the success of what you can do for yourself, but in your faith and what he has done for you because of his great love. The cross teaches you that the most important relationship that you have is your relationship with Jesus Christ. Because that's the only place that you will ever be perfect, perfectly loved. And it's the only relationship where you are made whole and complete. I want you to listen to me here very carefully. If you want to know how valuable you are in the eyes of God, look at the cross. Look at the cross. And I want you to picture the arms spread wide and Jesus saying, This much. This much. That's a tremendous amount of love. Do not let the world tell you what makes you valuable. Look at the cross and learn from the cross what makes you valuable as a child of God. I want you to let let that sink in because Joseph is a teenage boy and you need to be willing like him to stand for what is right even if you have to stand alone. That's what he did. In fact, teenage David stood alone, didn't he? When he went and faced the giant. Teenage Joseph stood alone when he walked into that enemy territory of Shechem. And you must be willing to stand alone in the same way in the world in which you live. Knowing that God is on your side. Graham and I have that verse, kind of as our verse, Joshua. It says, be courageous, be strong. Don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Be convinced of that truth. Because very often in your life, your circumstances will try to convince you of something different. And you need to be able to stand on that truth during those times. And in fact, that's what happens next in our story with Joseph. Look at verse 18. It said, when they saw him, his brothers saw him from a distance... And before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. And they said to one another, here comes the dreamer. Now then, come and let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And we will say that a wild beast devoured him. Then let us say what will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard this and rescued him out of their hands and said, let us not take his life. Reuben further said that to him, shed no blood, throw him into this pit that it pit that is in the wilderness but do not lay hands on him that he might rescue him out of the hands to restore him to his father so it came about when joseph reached his brothers they stripped him of his tunic 
his very colored tunic and that was on him, and they took him and threw him into the pit. Now the pit was empty without any water in it. You see, this was a premeditated plan for, for murder. There's no other way to, to look at it. Joseph's brothers were convinced that if they could kill the dreamer, that they would in fact kill the dreams. Joseph can't rule over anyone if he's dead, was their argument. But keep in mind, these dreams were a revelation from God. And God's word never returns void. Never. He will always accomplish his purposes. God always has been and always will be sovereignly in control. And when he makes a promise, there is no decision of man nor any power of Satan that can change the redeeming purpose of God in the world. A.W. Tozer explains it this way. I love this illustration. Listen to what he says. He says, let's say that an ocean liner leaves New York bound for Liverpool. He says its destination has been determined by proper authorities and nothing can change it. And he says this is at least a faint picture of what God's sovereignty looks like. He says, but on board that liner, there are several scores of passengers. He says they're all they're, they're not in chains. Neither are their activities determined for them by decree. They're completely free to move about as they will. They eat, sleep play, lounge around on the deck, read, talk to each other as they please. But all the while, the great liner is carrying them steadily onward toward a predetermined port. Both freedom and sovereignty are present, and they are not in contradiction to each other. And so it is with God. The mighty liner, he says, of God's sovereign design keeps its steady course over the sea of history. God moves undisturbed and unhindered toward the fulfillment of those eternal plans which he purposed in Christ before the world began. We do not know all that is included in those purposes, but enough has been disclosed, he says, to furnish us with a broad outline of things to come and to give us good hope and a a firm assurance of our future well-being. I don't know about you, but when I think about that, That gives me great comfort. It gives me great comfort to know that that God is in control and I'm not. (laughs) That God is sovereignly directing things to happen according to his purposes. And he's not going to a plan B when things don't work out like he expected them to. And I think what we see in the life of Joseph is just one more illustration of this truth. God made it clear in Joseph's dreams what would come to pass. And Joseph will later proclaim what his brothers intended for evil, God used for good. But just as evident as God's sovereignty in this passage is the dark reality of man's sinful heart. The scene has been changed slightly, but is this not the story of Cain and Abel all over again? See, brothers have now been motivated by jealousy to take vengeance and that vengeance has turned to hatred, and now that hatred has turned into a plot for murder. Except in this example, there is an unlikely hero that steps in, Reuben. Reuben is Jacob's firstborn, the oldest of these 12 brothers. 
And he comes in and he says, no, wait, wait, we can't kill Joseph. Just, just throw him into the pit. And the scripture goes on to tell us that his motive behind that was to then present him to his father. But I believe he had an ulterior motive in mind. You see, he's the firstborn son and should be the rightful recipient of his father's blessing. But we know from the story of Scripture that Reuben made an immoral decision and slept with his father's concubine. And in doing so, he forfeited the rights to that blessing. And so perhaps, perhaps he thought this was a way that he could get that back. The Scripture says that his goal was restore Joseph to his father. And in doing so, maybe he was hoping that his father would restore his blessing to him. I think it's very possible that God used this selfish desire of Reuben to fulfill his promise to protect the life of Joseph. (laughs) Isn't that interesting? But regardless of whether this is the case, we must not read these escalating events of this account and not see the progressive nature of sin. And here's why I think this is important. Very often we spend our time focusing our attention on controlling our sinful behaviors. But very often at the expense and even maybe ignoring our sinful attitudes. See, Joseph's brother didn't wake up one day and say, hey, I got an idea. Let's kill Joseph, our brother. No, that happened over time when sin was allowed to reign and it just sat there. And developed into something different. Maybe the first twinge came when they saw the twinkle in their parents' eyes as Rachel announced that she would be pregnant with her first child. And how excited they were about this birth, even though it had been preceded by ten other ones that wasn't near as exciting as this one was. Both their father and their mother were always talking about this very special child. I wonder how that made them feel. Maybe not so special anymore. And maybe when Joseph was born, they made all kinds of arrangements that they never really made for them. And maybe that special coat that Joseph received, maybe that was one of a lot of special gifts that Joseph received. We don't know the details, but we do know their response. We know that a root of bitterness had become established in their heart and that jealousy was allowed to grow. And as their words became sharp, they began to talk about things with each other and plot uh, evil towards their dreaming brother. Their venomous speech became uncontrolled wrath to the point that they no longer controlled their anger. Their anger controlled them. With that being said, let me remind you again that this is not just a story about Joseph. We need to enter in and realize that the same is true for us when we let unresolved conflict stagnate in our life as well. Enter in and realize that when bitterness takes root in our life, the progression of sin will put a stranglehold on our heart just as it did in the life of Joseph's brothers. It reminds me of a comment that was made by the speaker at the New Life Ranch family camp that Terry and our family were able to go to this year. It has stuck with me ever since. This is good. You probably want to write this down. This is what he said. He said, you always develop an appetite for that which you routinely feed yourself. Listen to that. You always develop an appetite for that which you routinely 
feed yourself. Now, he applied it into a, a different situation, but, but I look at it as it relates to bitterness, and I think this is true as well. For if bitterness is something that we feed on routinely, we develop an appetite that turns into jealousy, a craving for revenge, and eventually our heart is full of anger. We always develop an appetite for that which we routinely feed ourselves. Turn, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to close with this. Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 29. If you would, look at that with me. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. It says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word which is good for edification according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. These are all things very evident in our story this morning. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. The reason Paul says that it grieves the Holy Spirit when we devour each other with unkind words, is that because in order for us to get to that point where sin is allowed to get that much of a hold on our heart, we've had to ignore the conviction of the Holy Spirit not once, but time after time after time. God says, forgive as I have forgiven you. But very often we refuse because we believe that person doesn't deserve our forgiveness after what they've done. Forgetting, of course, that We didn't deserve God's forgiveness either, did we? But yet we freely accept the gift that he's given us. God says don't walk away. Don't be quarrelsome. Be patient when wronged. But we often conclude it's just not worth it. I'll just pick up my toys and go go play in another sandbox. But here's the deal. When you do that, when you walk away from unresolved conflict, when you refuse to... Deal with difficult times in the relationships that you have, whether it's your marriage, your your family, or your friendships. When you do that and and you feel like you're just going to leave and and walk away and, and go play in another sandbox, you need to understand that you're not walking away. You're taking it with you because it's in your heart. It's in your heart. Don't let it grow. Don't let bitterness take root. Seek to be reconciled. And do everything you can to make things right. Even if that means inviting others into the process, which very often is the case, where we need to ask for people to help us navigate a pathway to peace. People who can be in there for the common good of those who are involved. Remember what God says. He says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Because if you do, you allow Satan to get a a foothold. Don't let that happen. Some of you... Might even need to begin that today. Remember. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Let's make a commitment this morning. To make a, a clean break from sharp words. From backbiting. From gossip. Let's be gentle with one another. Sensitive with one another. Forgiving one another as quickly and as thoroughly as God in Christ has forgiven us. Can we do that? Predetermine 
to say only that which is helpful, encouraging, supportive, according to the need of the moment. Do your best to make each word you speak a gift that you give to the one you're speaking to. Do it to the praise and glory of his grace because that honors the God we serve who has forgiven us so freely. Let's pray. God, as we come to you, we are grateful for the example in the life of Joseph. Please help us to not stand at a distance, but to enter in, to recognize the the painful reality of jealousy and what it develops into when it is allowed to fester and infect inside of our heart. May we be courageous to, to stand up and fight for our relationships in a way that honors you. May we be courageous to stand for what is right, maybe even when no one else is walking with us, where we perhaps walk alone, uh, because there are going to be those times. Father, help us to be people of integrity who are unwilling to, to compromise and to do what is right in your eyes first. And may we lead out of the own experience that we have of a faithful walk with you, Father. May we uh, share out of the experience of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. We pray this in your name.